0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show
1: description to support now.
2: Priesthood Dispatches. He's a man. (laughs) It's awesome, funny, random. Doesn't make any sense, but it's good.
3: Hi everyone, welcome back to the channel. This evening I brought some friends again and let's invite them in we've got julian heath with his shirt on we've got jane from 21st century saints rocking the haircut and peter bleakley from mormon civil war and we love to see those danglies from his ears okay so this evening we're going to get back to the temple and last time we left off at the end of the navu period and we had some questions <coughs> and answers no some Questions and comments from you guys. So we're gonna look at a few of those first. And if I just share my screen, we can go. Oh, damn it. I didn't mean to share that, that website. Um <laughs> at the end of the last episode, Nemo teased us by saying he'd take his shirt off. And he did this week. Nemo, you are looking buff, my friend. Um, he can't be with us this evening because he's busy at work. Um, yeah, sorry. We we'll just look at that for a minute. And we're done. the reward
4: so, for 1,000 subscribers. Well done.
3: Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, one more time. And yeah. So questions and comments from the congregation. You people were amazing. I think we had like over a hundred comments on the last video. We had over 250 likes, which was great for the algorithm, and people seem to have really enjoyed it. So let's take a look at the questions. Um, First one, Cos Bjorn. Why didn't Joseph Smith restore animal sacrifice or circumcision? Anyone in the room?
2: Okay, circumcision first, because that obviously is going to be... The one that the most most of the gentlemen in the room would be, con- you know, concerned about is—is is it going to be restored? Um, is this something you're going to need to worry about? My understanding is no, that that one is is not coming back because it's been fulfilled. Um, the whole Jesus Christ came to do that thing, and he was kind of clear in uh, the Book Mormon that that's not going to happen. Is that everyone else's understanding on that one?
0: I'm just thinking, you know what. Why didn't Joseph Smith restore circumcision? Hmm. Why? Why wouldn't he do that? <laughs> I don't, don't really think it needs an answer, does it? No. Peter we
3: can't hear.
4: Well, that's it. Well, I mean, I think it's uh can you hear me now? Got you, bro. Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah. Um so I think it's uh I mean it's a great question because the point is here he is getting excited about restoring things from the past and particularly from the patriarchal Abrahamic era. Um. Uh, yeah, but uh, that's the answer, isn't it? That Jesus said it's no longer necessary. Um. But I um I would point out that most of the Mormons in Utah get circumcised anyway because most Americans do that. So I if, can speak from personal experience.
3: If the circumcision <laughs> thing was fulfilled, then too much information. Uh. Why? What about the animal sacrifices? <laughs>
2: So animal sacrifices, according to my understanding, had been from all of the stuff that I had read, I was pretty sure that animal sacrifice was still a thing that was going to happen. Um, Enough um, that whenever I was having a look at this question through the week, yeah, Fair Mormon has got a few things to say about it, as does uh, what Book of Mormon Central, all of these types of things. So we are going to Doctrine and Covenants section 13, where it talks about when the priesthood was restored. Um, okay, uh, and this shall never be taken again from the earth until the sons of Levi do offer again an offering unto the Lord in righteousness leading to uh, people like fear Mormon and uh, apologists to uh, suggest that yeah animal sacrifice is going to come back that the literal sons of Levi will be um will be performing that or- that ordinance in the temple and that's going to be one of the the signs that Jesus is indeed. On his
3: way back. Okay, I I want to make a point. I live in quite a rural area, um, and uh, next to me is a sheep uh, a field full of sheep and goats. And one of the goats got out the other day, so I was wrestling a goat, and it was hard. I cannot imagine if that goat thought I was genuinely going to kill it, um, how ho- how much harder it would have been to wrestle that goat. Like the sons of Levi are going to have to be jacked, um, and for anyone that came. Um, slightly late they'll need to be jacked like our friend Nemo (laughs) sorry this is going to keep happening okay so
2: I mean these guys were you know like in the biblical times when sacrifice was a thing these guys were used to working with animals if you've ever seen you know like sheep shearing and uh, you know dipping and things like that yeah these guys know how to handle the sacrifice and it's I think A job that would kind of double up almost as a butcher. So, like, we're gonna we're gonna be eating what we, you know, what is being sacrificed. It's it's um, I suppose we'll have um a lot of rules and regulations around it. I don't know, but I'm pretty sure these guys will be will know what they're doing. Well, who knows? It won't be a woman. We we know that it's you know we 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 can establish that. So the the guys will know what they're doing.
3: Yeah. Well, uh, on to Two Cats' comment here. Two Cats was speaking about the fact that as a child, he wasn't born in the covenant and then went to be sealed in the temple. And he was just asking, um, what about other situations like when all children are born in the covenant? Obviously, there's no need for a temple sealing then because it's just automatic. Um, or a family ceiling each time a non born in the covenant child turns eight and i spoke to um an ex temple president earlier and put the question to him and he said you just wait for everyone to turn eight so i guess if unless you're really worried that the world's going to end before that child turns eight
0: can you not um i I, this is just from memory i'm sorry i haven't looked i've done any homework or anything here but Okay. I thought that if you had children under the age of eight, so if you joined the church with a, you know a young family, you could go and be sealed, and your children um, that were under the age of eight would be brought into the seating room with you. Yeah, they yeah. are. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Well, I, I... Which
2: is which is why there's a nursery there, so they're not there for the whole time, but they are brought in. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I I feel like it's really important to highlight things like this. As soon as the children, if you risk the children being over the age of eight, um, getting to that youth stage when they might not necessarily want to go to the temple, you've got to kind of, if, if you're having to have everyone in your family sealed because you're waiting for them all to be eight, you also potentially want to have that all done before they have to have their youth recommends. I'm just saying that might be an issue that might, you know, potentially cause problems or when they're over 18 and they maybe have left the church. So waiting comes with its own problems. But the other thing is that if you have a child who has got who would need to be sealed to their family as converts, if that child, like mine, has special needs, that child doesn't automatically get to go with you into the temple if they're over the age of eight. Um, that There's potential for a proxy ceiling to happen there, possibly. Mm. But, yeah, everything is very, very up in the air independent.
3: Proxies. We're going to get to proxies. Um, okay, then. Well, two cats, there was an answer to the question. It's complicated okay during polygamy times did any of the plural wives ever receive the second anointing i don't know we're not
4: sure about this because it's the yeah i mean it begs the question did wendy um get her second anointing when she married um president nelson because she's a second wife um and how does that work? Did I, you know, I get because a lot of it seems to be involving the wife sort of blessing the husband, but I guess it's technically possible to have more added. Um, so yes, yeah, so that's an interesting yeah. question. We don't know the exact answer on that one, but if both I'm pretty sure both the wives is, were alive,
3: yeah, I can see it being like, you know, when you go to a kid's baptism, they're doing the confirmation, and all the men stand around it'd be like that with all the sisters stood around their husband, like giving a blessing.
4: <laughs> well, that's it. How did the second, second anointing work when you already had plural wives? That's a really interesting question. Did, did, did it all happen with them all at In once? Or... Well, we'll touch
3: briefly yeah. on second anointings no. because when I was looking at it, I came across these uh, facts and figures. Uh, and these are from the, uh, let me get the name of the book. It is mysteries of godliness and these are in the back which is amazing and you can see that there's that they actually kept a record of the numbers of second anointings and which temples they were in etc all the way up until like 1941 when it I'm guessing it all just became super super secret because even over here um, on just all the temple work done for the dead and the living up to 1940 we've got second anointings on there and then it became super super secret. Uh, the interesting thing is second anointings for the dead. like how pointless is that? they're already there. jesus can just nip in and say hello.
0: well that that might i don't know this has just occurred to me but that might relate to the first question, you know. so you imagine um somebody like um I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm sure Russell Nelson had his second anointing um, when his first wife was alive. But, you know, you imagine a situation where he... Um, so if you've got he, so many he, dead wives... Yeah, he has a wife that dies, yeah. and then he's remarried, um, and then he receives his second anointing, that maybe that's what it's talking about. Possibly, there. possibly. Yeah. That um, would make sense,
4: oh. if any of it makes sense. someone Someone. would. would someone, so someone would... Yeah, so someone would so he would go through with a proxy for his for one's first wife um but then they have to still give you a blessing you know it's quite personal that the i the crescendo of the second anointing is they, yeah. they go into the room alone and the the wife blesses the husband these are great questions i mean we go you said pd we're going to get to this in a future episode we're, we're going to do this towards the end, end of the
3: series uh um, so, then yeah so this Not is now. something we can all research. So yeah. if
4: anyone out there knows, let's find out. We can ask in a few of the church historians groups and get I'll... get the lowdown and see if we Yeah,
2: I, find I, I definitely it's... want to come back to that question.
0: Yeah. I don't think the um just you saying about the blessing um Peter, I, I don't think it is mm. kind of an essential part of the ordinance in the same way as when you receive the when when you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, you are given a blessing but the blessing's not really important is it it's the the, the confirmation mm-hmm. receiving the gift of the holy ghost and then any blessing afterwards is just you know
4: yeah but you so, better but word still presumably yeah. have to lay a hands and say something yeah these are great okay. questions aren't they so mm-hmm. that, yeah, that's yeah, really thought yeah. provoking i i think all of these systems they when you start to look at them too closely you do start to come across the incongruencies and it all starts to look a bit wobbly um, when you try and make sense of it. And um, we've definitely found that in our process of trying to get a ceiling cancelled and clearance for a, for me to be sealed to Lynn. Um, you suddenly realise what adoptional car crash is going on behind the scenes and why they do keep it vague while also having some secret reasons for doing things they don't tell anyone unless you really ask. So it's 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 uh, it, it it spirals into a really complicated mush. The more you ask these questions and and get down to the granular detail, so really great question. Yeah. Could I maybe I
2: would would you guys be interested in the quote from This Is My Doctrine by Charles R. Harrell on the subject, which has been kind of the definitive one that gets me through when there's anything like this? Um, but it explains that um by nine sorry, by 1842, the sealing of individuals to eternal life started becoming dissociated with the endowment, as that became part of the developing covenant of celestial marriage. In July 1842, Joseph Smith was married for time and eternity to Sarah Ann Whitney by one count his 16th plural wife. The wording of the ceremony, which was given by Revelation, concluded with the promise, let immortality and eternal life henceforth be sealed upon your heads forever and ever. It is noteworthy that the word seal when used in the marriage ceremony didn't designate joining of husband and wife, but rather signified that one's calling and election was made sure. Accordingly, the sealing spoken of in Doctrine and Covenants 132 is not the sealing of wives to husbands, but rather the sealing or ratification of the promise of eternal life, whereby their exaltation is sealed upon their heads. In Orson Pratt's eighteen fifty three published account of the temple wedding ceremony, the word "seal" is used three times. It goes on to say a little bit more. I would um, maybe what I'll do is I'll I'll screenshot it and you can share it PD if you think that that awesome. would be interesting. But there is a little bit more.
0: Oh, I've got one here as well. So this is this is from the diary of Henry Iring not not the current Henry Iring I'm guessing it's. Um, granddad or someone like that. Great granddad, I don't know. Um, so this is his diary um, 18, from 1877. He says, myself and wives received our second anointing under the hands of Alder Wilford Woodruff. Ooh,
4: um, there you go. So, yeah. you answer to some of it. <laughs> awesome. Uh, that, thank you, Mark. It's a whole rabbit hole, that one, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, thanks Marco uh,
3: Yes, we will do an episode with you and Maven Maven and Marco were just in the UK And did a whistle stop tour of the Britvengers Unfortunately, Jane had COVID um, So I had to miss out But the rest of us had a great time um, We'll we'll get you on and we'll do some holiday snaps um, Awesome So Simon Shrub uh, He was talking about the Brigham Young quote uh, That I put up last time um, but he says that you need to to view, I guess, Brigham Young's temple ceremony with polygamy in mind. And he asks um, a question of interest is how many non polygamous men and women were endowed members in the early church? So was it a requirement to be uh, polygamous to be endowed? Oh, I. Julian's got one on this. Yeah,
2: he does.
0: No, I was just going to, I think it kind of. That, um, that relationship works the other way around. So um, when the endowment was first introduced, I think a big function of it was to prepare this group of people for polygamy. Um, and not the least because you're making lots of covenants there um, with penalties that you're going to keep certain things secret. So the, a major part of the endowment was this ability to keep a secret. And, and there are lots of kind of early quotes from people saying um, that the problem with with the saints is that they can't keep a secret or um, comments about Freemasonry where you've got people like Heber C. Kimball who was a, a Mason saying the great thing about Masonry is that, that the Masons can keep a secret. And so I think there is this relationship between the endowment and and polygamy because it was to prepare people so that they so that they could be introduced to polygamy and they could be trusted to keep these things secret. Yeah. Or sacred. Not secret, sacred. Uh, so sacred, they're secret, I
3: think is what RFM says. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> I think when we looked back at, or when Julian looked back at who the first group of uh, endowed members were, William Law was in there. And we know that William Law had a real um, problem with polygamy. And that's why he started the Narbu Expositor with his brother and some others um, to unearth, uh, you know, unveil polygamy to the world. So he didn't have to be
0: polygamous before he went for his endowment. He didn't, but but Laura made, I was talking to Laura about this. She made a really good point um, that at this point when, when William Law was endowed, they, probably hadn't introduced the idea of polygamy mm. to him at that point. So so they were probably expecting that he would was going to be one of these this kind of elite group that he could then introduce polygamy to. Um but it didn't well, I think I mean there plan. was of course the yeah there was the
4: endowment binge though. Once Brigham Young had formulated the endowment into a complete thing and they'd finished the mm. Narvu Temple, yeah they were they were powering couples through the the um, Nauvoo temple to be endowed and sealed um, and a lot of them weren't polygamous yet some of them were very young it's um, only just started so I mean that's a point in history where it certainly wasn't a requirement to be polygamous to to have your endowment yeah Good. Uh, the, things change, you know. Brigham Young later made, you know, started teaching that you have to be polygamous to make it to the celestial kingdom. So, yeah, or the upper echelons thereof. Okay. So that you know that over time that evolved to make polygamy
0: more and more compulsory. Yeah, and that's one of the things that is is kind of difficult about all of this, and and one of the things that makes it so interesting, and one of the things that obviously we've been we've been discussing with this is that, um you it's all about development it's all about development and and change and you know despite however people want to kind of put forward this idea that the ordinances never change and that the gospel never changes you know the temple being the the highest ordinance um or sorry the temple being a place where you receive the highest ordinances there is constant change and development going on
3: yeah so next question Uh, pd okay the next question sorry i just clicked off um so Kay Wolseley just wanted to make the point that i think we've all made at times is that to go to the temple you must be a full tithe payer and that if you're not a full tithe payer you can't get in and therefore you can't partake in the covenants and get the required information so therefore you have to pay to get into heaven by extension um which i thought was interesting we don't need to go into that i think it's that's just a logical kind of step that cynical
4: i i that triggers a little memory for me um you know a year or two ago um a member of my bishopric um sort of made some comments i think it was in a bishopric meeting um maybe a lesson um, saying you know god, god give we we are offered all this salvation and all these great gifts and eternal life for free as a free gift and i said um no you have to pay tithing for it and you could see a little sort of mental car crash happening in the room because no one had really made that connection before yeah. you know we've got this idea idealism about it's all free and given freely and so on but no actually they mm-hmm. they require some very specific percentages yeah. of your income in order to have access to any of it. <laughs> so I've got a quote to... here,
0: um, PD. So so I don't know what the... I'm not sure what the situation was in Nauvoo with the Nauvoo endowments, um, whether they had to pay tithing, I don't know. Um, but um, rules for admission, this is in 1856 um, with the opening of the endowment house. So this is kind of the first endowments that were... Um, that were carried out in utah says the persons who can get their endowments must be those who pray who pay their tithing from year to year who live the lives of saints from day to day setting good examples before their neighbors men and women boys and girls over 16 years of age who are living the lives of saints believe in the plurality of of wives do not speak evil of the authorities of the church and possess true integrity towards their friends can come up after their spring crops are sown and this and their case shall be attended to. So that's kind of like an an early, um, the early kind of temple recommend questions. I
3: I wonder who was the first person in human history who like had religion and then thought, you know, I could monetize this, (laughs) you know, and was just like, because people will have bought like gifts and offerings. Like you imagine, um, someone they bring the fatted lamb or or whatever it might be, but who who was it that took it from a gift and an offering to? If it's easier, you can just throw a few shekels in that tray.
2: Well, yeah. we we learn who at the in the temple it was Satan himself that money uh, monetized and mm. did oh, yeah. the the whole malarkey what... there. Yeah. But you know, so I I am very conscious of the fact that I feel like that part of me that is still apologetic and um has has had specific experiences um you know what I I think I think I'm gonna I'm gonna just share this and just let you guys have fun with it because this is genuinely what I keep wrestling with right now um while I totally sympathize at how awful it must be to be able to hand over checks and not know where that that goes to, I am. I have a different sort of background. Being married as a convert to a non-member husband, and he is n- not just the breadwinner, but you know, I, I stay home and look after the kids. So my, if you all want to do the maths with me, that my income is zero, mm-hmm. and I go before my bishop every year. Um, when he remembers to ask me, because it's there's not usually a lot of point in asking me, which is crap. Um, but I am a full tithe payer. I pay 10% on that zero. Yep. Um so I, you know, I I don't have that that experience. And you know, I, I look at, at me and other saints who would be in the same position. That if you have no income, you can still be a full tithe payer. And that's genuinely what I'm sort of sitting here while I totally agree with what you guys are saying. That is the effect that it has. It's not been something yeah. I've had to wrestle with.
3: We we used to pay it yearly towards the end because we thought, well, better the money's in my account for a year. Like Jesus will still get it, but if if it hits the fan. I've got a few thousand pounds sat there, kind of not doing anything. But then when you go to give the check in, when you zero the account
4: (laughs) and you go to give it
3: and you're handing over what is a really nice, like five-star cruise or something like that, and you're just like, oh, my gosh.
2: Can I ask a question too? Mm -hmm. And I'm so sorry if I'm, like, ruining your schedule, but this is a really interesting question to me. (laughs) Schedule.
3: (laughs) Go on. (laughs) We're here all night.
2: Okay, I mean, audience, please let let me know about this too. But isn't it the case that if you pay tithing in America, you get to sort of claim back at the end of the tax year? There, there's there's sort of ta- tax benefits for you doing that.
3: It's the same here if
0: you're self-employed,
2: right? So you, you can write
3: <laughs>
0: it off. Well, you so- can. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say it's so. So my understanding of this um, is that if you If you use gift aid, then Mm. the tax that you paid on the money that you're donating is given to the charity as well. We'll call it the charity, Um, is given to the charity as well. And, you know, so really what you should be doing is you should be saying, well, okay, well, you're getting your 10%. You don't need that extra bit, that extra bit. I, I keep that back. But but of course, it's not seen that way, is it? And, and this is, yeah. I mean, we could easily turn this into a podcast about tithing, couldn't we? But for a principle that we, that we hear all the time, it's not about the money. It feels a lot about the money, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, as soon as you start to look at these things, you know, and when you say about, you know, when did it start? Um and we talked about offerings you know offerings have been there for as long as religion has been there and that goes back to when we were talking about the um, the animal sacrifices you know that was a, a, that was an offering that was given and it was a, an offering that would be used in most cases to feed the the professional clergy as well they would they would be fed from the, those offerings um but it's relatively recently where we've got this mindset of, well, this is, it's not 10% because the scriptures do not, there isn't a scripture that says donate 10% of your income. It doesn't say that it's 10% of your increase. Um, And that was all, you know, if you look in the records of the early church, that was always um, meant to be understood as once you've paid all of your bills, once you've you've fed your family and done all of those things any surplus that you've got you actually mentioned i think in the doctrine and covenants he mentions surplus so any surplus that you've got that is then tithed and and what we've done is we've changed it now to this idea of well no it's 10 percent of your income and you even have this argument of well do you want gross blessings or net blessings? or nets <laughs> you know which is mm. absolutely ridiculous it's ridiculous and it's really quite um it's abhorrent i think because it goes along with this idea that god is going to bless you more than more money that you donate um which again we could we could have another yeah, podcast all about, about that, prosperity totally. gospel and that kind of <laughs> thing
3: it's yeah it's, it's awful yeah it's awful okay well let me this, so this as is... ward
0: clark
4: um one of my big jobs was giving people uh, the paperwork to guide them through how to gift aid their tithing then take off the twenty-one percent or whatever from what they were donating to the church because the church would then make it up to the full amount. So it does mean that you get a discount on your tithing. You, you're not paying a full ten percent. Okay, you and, get that and that's and the what really, it. And, really and and that it. was seen as completely acceptable. You that's know, what that I was used to eight
3: yeah. percent yeah. um, and
4: it wasn't seen as a problem
2: because yeah. Well, disagree. money
4: going to the government.
3: Yeah. yeah <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm going to call a halt. Whole- I'm going to call a halt to give You are so selfish. We're going to end the tithing on this. This pastor dies and he's only resurrected if she receives enough offerings. I saw this the other day. And it's, it's perfect. Brilliant. Let's just hope it plays. Okay, she's on the floor. Watch this. Like, I'd just be sat there. For anyone that's listening to this, this lady pasta is just laid on the floor and everyone's clapping and people are just walking up with like dollar bills because this has got to be america um, and just dropping them on her chest trying to resuscitate her i mean at what point does she think that's a heavy stack
0: <laughs> that's nuts. yeah okay imagine if she had actually like She'd actually passed out, or had a stroke, or something like that. And really, what she <laughs> needs is like proper, Every, <laughs> pro- proper the, the medical attention. CPR. And they're all just, you know, that's like the ultimate boy who cried wolf, isn't it?
3: <laughs> yeah. The the paramedics come and they're just like, oh my, um, we're the insurance company will pay us. Don't worry, guys. There's like two thousand dollars stacked on top mm. of her. Um, oh dear.
4: tithing is your fire insurance for the last days. So literally, in Mormon theology that is what's going on you're saving yourself if you don't pay enough tithing you are going to die spiritually you'll be He's cast up. into outer darkness
0: i bought that with my uh bought that up with my mortgage provider and they would not accept that and no. Said, no you need proper <laughs> proper, need cover. proper insurance yeah
3: well i was reading earlier today um that in the great depression they used to pay people to do ordinances for the dead at the temple it was seventy-five cents oh, for a male yeah. or a male endowment, and fifty cents for a female endowment. Mm. So, wow. yeah, that was that's in in that book that I said earlier. What was it called again? I keep forgetting. Um, the, mysteries the mysteries of us. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it,
2: even even getting a sealed or your patriarchal blessing that those things involved money. Mm. Yeah. yeah
3: yeah mm. okay so we're gonna we're gonna start moving this train along and we're gonna get to baptism for the dead and there was an int- someone wrote an interesting little story about how they thought or imagined work for the dead was going to work team poseidon down here at the bottom team poseidon if you're here big up this was this made me laugh he said it's like an ordinance done in in a temple here and then Something like a telegram is delivered to the spirit of the relevant person, spirit messenger. I have a telegram for the deceased spirit of Reginald uh, Putridus LaPouf. Are you the spirit of the said LaPouf who died in 1767? LaPouf. That sounds like me, but I must confess my memory has become a little foggy ever since I became a disembodied spirit. But the name and year does ring a bell. In fact, if I recall correctly, I died while ringing a bell in a poorly constructed belfry. Fell right out of the belfry and plunged down to the cobblestones below. Yes, it's coming back to me now. Spirit messenger. That's all the confirmation I need. The telegram says that a good Mormon has been uh, nearly drowned in a pool of water while pretending to be you. And that their magical baptismal prayer wording was said with your name inserted as the object thereof. Do you accept this baptism or not? Please check the correct box on the form. La Pouf, what's a Mormon? Mm, 1767 good. is pre Mormon. You know, I don't know. I just thought it was funny. I thought it was funny. Died on its ass. <laughs> it's,
0: it's, no, it's good. It's good. It's good. I like it. Well well done, team. Okay. Well, on,
3: on that note, everyone, on the last video, we got 250 likes. So we're going to shoot for 300. Um Yeah, go click it now. Uh, on the like count, we're only on sixteen, and there's like been like sixty people here. So wow. come on, guys, we're not that bad. But moving on, to the baptism. dog on you. No, it's,
2: it's that my dog is now freaking out anytime PD speaks. This is because of the, <laughs> night in the hotel. We're,
3: we're right. gonna get. We're gonna get to the night in the hotel okay baptism for the dead we're gonna we're gonna deal with these dead people first okay uh so from the church i thought who is best to explain baptism for the dead rather than the, the church and so that's what they're about to do and now we'll you may know. have wondered
1: about the mormon practice called baptism for the dead something that may be new to some of you so what is baptism for the dead where is it done and why is it important to mormons First, let's talk a little bit about baptism for the living. 2,000 years ago, Jesus went to the Jordan River where he was baptized by immersion, lowered fully under the water by John the Baptist. By doing this, Jesus showed us two things. One, that everyone needs to be baptized, even he, being perfect. And two, a baptism must be performed by someone with authority from God.
3: Okay, and then she goes on a little bit about temples and proxies, This is an interesting bit. She's going to teach us what a proxy is. I'm doing this so I don't get a copyright strike from the church on their YouTube.
1: It's dead people. They use proxies, living stand-ins, to represent those who have passed away without proper baptism. Let's explain proxy a bit. Your math teacher couldn't make it to class because she was out sick, so she arranged for a substitute, a proxy, to fill in for her. And you'll remember from the Bible that Jesus suffered for our sins. He also acted as.
3: I love it how they use really uh, like menial day to day tasks to describe eternal. These proxy um, baptisms
1: are also by immersion and with priesthood authority. And each one is witnessed and recorded. And that's why Mormons are so interested in finding their ancestors so they can do a proxy baptism for them. You may be asking yourself, isn't it a little presumptuous for Mormons to perform a baptism for the dead who may not even want it? Well, the Bible teaches us that individuals have the right to choose. Mormons believe that right continues after death and that spirits of the
4: you... Sorry, where does the Bible teach that?
3: I think when I looked at the article, they're referring to 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty nine. Because Yeah, but that's... it's no
4: right to choose. There's nothing to do with the right to choose in the Bible anywhere, whatsoever.
3: Peter, she's not answering questions back. But, speaking (laughs) of the right to choose, right, trouble in paradise. Um, Please ignore Nemo. Trouble in paradise. Speaking of the right to choose, it says in there that uh, people who are baptised as dead people don't become members of the Mormon church because they got in trouble for that. Here, when they baptised, thousands and thousands of holocaust victims um, this is from the church website unfortunately some of the names inappropriately submitted for temple baptism have been jewish holocaust victims who were not relatives of church members in the early 1900s the leaders of a number of jewish organizations approached the church about the issue sorry not 1900s 1990s um, the church has always had the deepest respect for the jewish people and close relations with many Jewish groups in 1995 in the spirit of brotherhood and accommodation, the church identified a number of measures to address the problem. now I wonder if that measure was that they got loads of children to go into the font and unbaptized them in the name of those Jewish people (laughs) and dried them on the way out. They were just like, Oh, okay, get dry quick in the name of (laughs) Mr. Goldblum yeah Um, but yeah they they the church has been very ordinance happy for a long time and then had to um kind of wind their neck in on that one
4: well it's the passive aggressive nonsense again isn't it inappropriately baptized as if the members have been told not to which they had not been told not to you know it's all let's get everyone baptized follow your family we'll we'll just pick random politicians who wrote the constitution even though half of them were atheists and baptize them you know it's there was no hints anywhere that one should be careful to avoid holocaust victims that was on them and they're as usual they're trying to blame the members in the in the wording well so i think the thing the is as thing. well
3: when you're baptizing holocaust victims on one side and then you're baptizing hitler over and over again on the other side (laughs) and just kind of lumping everyone in together it's a bit insensitive Mm. and one one prominent advocate it says down here recently wrote it is time for the church of jesus christ to end its doctrine that their mission is the salvation of the entire human race both living and dead could you imagine if they ended that
0: (laughs) i've got to say uh, I might get into trouble. James, Say it. You're here, so you can round me in if I if I go too far. I don't get what all the fuss is about. If you don't believe it, it doesn't matter, does it? Do you know what I mean? I would have thought the only people that would really be ticked off about something like this is people that believe, that, you know,
3: like... No, but they they literally just, died because of their
0: religion.
2: Um, yeah, but it doesn't
0: matter if you don't believe any of it. It doesn't matter. It's not like they're going to they're gonna kind of... <laughs> to heaven and someone some like spirit missionary is going to come in and go oh so you can't be jewish anymore we've baptized you down on earth you're a mormon now if you don't believe it it doesn't make any difference does it
2: yeah well see i i love that this is this is one of those moments where like i can be a little bit of a you know uh i I can be a bit of a Karen about this if i want to and because i'm going to pull peter in as well because you've got the history background we're not just talking about people who baptize their their neighbors or their you know that you shouldn't really Mm. be baptizing your wife's father-in-law that's that's she her family have to give permission and your excitement to get that name to the temple and your um desperation that they are you know how long do they have to wait the kinds of language we hear members using about how long they've been waiting for we're not talking about that and that is pretty crap you're you know you're you're you don't have the right to do that and i love that the church has really tightened up on that the jewish issue specifically is another it is a completely separate individual problematic thing because it reeks of anti-semitism and all of the roots of that um i I, they're absolutely right to be grossly offended um by it and like I say it's it's because we've got this you know the world has a history of um of what happens when anti-Semitic um views take hold um we forget that that Jews aren't this isn't just a bunch of religions you know religious people this is a whole culture um of people who were um you know what Peter it's your job i'll let you I'll let you talk about it but yeah it's specifically because um, it's this democratic well,
3: I think yeah, the Julian's a the
4: history, history teacher, so he should know better. You're a very naughty boy. No, no, it's about memory. It's about claiming ownership of dead people who were were had genocide committed against them because of their religion, and and it, it's extremely offensive. As you well, can I, say, I must just uh, be a very insensitive claim person
0: because I just don't care. Well, I'm dead. Yeah. It doesn't matter. If you don't believe you're, it, but you're I liberals. don't believe it, it doesn't we make any difference to me.
4: Yeah, but it, might, but it might if you had a lot of historical baggage to do with, with memory, like when you wipe out millions of people, all you have is memory. All you have is their their memory as people who, um, you know, that they're, they're still present in your world, in your worldview and your culture, and to have some group come along and sort of claim them for themselves even after they're dead, it's desecrating the dead. Um, It raises all kinds of really interesting issues and and the church really screwed up because it was found soon after, uh, a year or two or something after agreeing to stop doing this, um, people did a bit of research and found that they were still baptising Holocaust victims. Like the church, as usual, didn't actually do the thing it said it would publicly, like they did with abandoning polygamy. So it's been, it's dragged on. Um, so, I mean, of course, you're right, Julian. Objectively, if you don't believe this matters, you can ignore it. But I, th- you know, humans, culture, and civilization, and our relationships with each other are are involved so many more sort of factors and nuances and implications. Um, I think it, it's 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 insulting the dead. It's going up to the graves of the Holocaust victims and you know digging them up and baptizing them as mormons symbolically literally you know in our doctrine um so i do th- it is problematic
3: i think as um, well but it's then probably
4: d- could quite... this apply to other groups and individuals as well yeah
3: well i was gonna say it's probably quite jarring to anyone not mormon because for us you hear baptism for the dead and you're like well yeah it's just standard you know it's water off a duck's back it doesn't even register but for people of other faiths, where necromancy and different things like that are very evil practices, then there may be something there for people being like, "Well, you've taken my my uh, grandfather into this evil practice or whatever, and seen it as kind of a satanic thing, rather than just being another option in a righteous religion." They see it as this kind of witchcraft and wizardry and not harry potter but
0: yeah i think that's a good point
3: pd yeah okay well let's see where and a lot
4: and there's a whole culture as well around you know we see dead people at the temple you know it is very much that you i mean that's an angle we don't usually think about but it is it is necromancy in a sense or could be seen that way and that raises a whole other you know opens lots of cans of worms
3: well yeah when did it start i was i was saying to um the guys at the haunted hotel i said as a youth to go to the temple and do baptisms for the dead, the Mm. pinnacle would be to come up out of the water and see the person you were doing the baptism for stood at the side of the font in like their 16th century clothing and stuff. And to actually witness, yeah. You know what I mean? That's, that's the pinnacle in the Mm. temple. Or what do people say? I felt them there. I felt my ancestor there with me. And I actually, you...
2: yeah. Sorry, I'm jumping in. Go keep going. Um, well, I just I think that's a that's a really interesting point. You're right. It doesn't get talked about a lot. But I and I think often um women tend to talk about these types of experiences more. Um when, in my my time between I, I was telling PD this the other day in my time uh, during while I was less active from the church um, I had spent a bit of time in the spiritualist movement doing the whole, you know seeing what's going to come through kind of thing and I was really surprised going back to hear the the one, now that is so offensive to Mormons, right? It's um, an abomination unto the Lord was the quote I kept hearing in my ward about the whole subject horoscopes, you name it but you would go to the temple and you would hear this kind of um, spiritual, the language of spiritualism to the point where, um, you know, I remember women mm. saying, um, did your aunt used to, used to walk with with a limp and, and a cane because I I could see her. And, you know, she they were really mm. trying to sort of connect over this sacred experience that one's feeling a bit uncomfortable with. And one is having this, this vision of what this dead woman looked like. Now that's, one of many many experiences but I think because women don't tend to get to exercise these gifts of the spirit there is that crossover in the temple we're told it's where heaven meets the earth we're told that the veil is very very thin there and if you're going to have an experience an experience we hear that we hear that that phrase talked about a lot you will have an experience um it is going to be in the temple. It is set set apart and designed mm-hmm. for that one purpose. So yeah, there's there's kind of a lot of that going on.
3: Yeah. Awesome. Right.
4: That's a really that's a really good point because it, it is where, I mean, we all know women who are it, the temple is absolutely their life, yeah. um, and you can see that this is where they feel empowered and powerful, where they come closest to being priesthood holders in effect and and do all of that i I'd never really sort of thought of it from that perspective that's really interesting and with all the cult the cultural stuff and folklore of seeing the dead ancestors there you know i mean it came up repeatedly in fast and testimony meeting i was at the temple i felt these people desperate to get this work done and then i saw them or felt their presence um if you just step back and look at all of that objectively in a context of being uncomfortable with talking to dead people, because it's quite forbidden in the law of Moses, the, the, you're really treading in some some dodgy territory from most
3: religious points of view. Yeah, well, wow. We're, we're about to find out how they've justified it. So where did it, or when did it start? And obviously starts with Joseph. On August 15th, 1840, shortly after the saints moved, Um, to the future site of Nauvoo, Illinois. Joseph Smith preached a sermon at the funeral of church member Seymour Brunson. Noticing a woman in attendance who had lost her son before he could be baptized, Joseph revealed to the saints uh, that the saints could now act for their friends who had departed this life by being baptized in their behalf. He cited the ancient apostle Paul's teachings regarding baptism for the dead and encouraged the saints to rejoice, that the plan of salvation was calculated to save all who were willing to obey the requirements of the law of God. So the apostle Paul taught baptism for the dead, apparently, um, and they get that Bible precedent from uh, taken from the church website. Of course, proxy baptism for the deceased is nothing new. It was mentioned by Paul in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15, 29, and was practiced by groups of early Christians as part of a restoration of the New Testament Christianity. Latter-day Saints continue this practice. And the actual verse that they based all of this on, 1 Corinthians 15, 29, else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead not rise at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? okay and i looked up in preparing for this what other interpretations of this are because the church has a very specific interpretation they've taken that as proof that early christians practiced baptism for the dead and that that needed to be uh that was joseph had been reading that but other In this whole section of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is trying to reason with people that you are resurrected to a physical body, that after this life, you're not just a spirit. Okay. And that he's using this as um, an example, you know, of saying, well, why would you be baptized for someone who's dead if they don't have a body? Okay. Because they don't need a, a, you don't need to baptize spirits. Okay but that he speaks of other groups that are doing it, not Christians, because he's saying, why are they then baptized for the dead? Not why are we baptized for the dead? And that he's using an example of a non-Christian group and their, I guess, pagan kind of uh, practices, Mm. but the church has taken I think that's
4: a bit tenuous, yeah. I think that's a very tenuous argument because this verse is the linchpin of a train of thought in this chapter. Mm-hmm. It's basically using baptism for the dead as proof of of the afterlife and resurrection. So that yeah. that I don't think that actually works rationally. Um, I this is something I really got into at university because I I had um, when the Christian Union excommunicated me or put me on on disfellowshipment um that i was participating with at uni and oh said i gosh. wasn't allowed to pray in their meetings anymore because i'm a mormon this keeps Ga- happening to me it guys habit. just before you um, go on
3: peter guys what is our yeah. excommunication policy because i think peter's gonna force our hand at some point it seems every group he becomes <laughs> a part of they kick him out As a... it just...
1: oh we and lost it's... pd i don't
4: know have a have a discuss. <laughs>
3: If you. On oh, there, guys.
1: Uh, yeah, I That's think it. PD's. Um...
3: Oh, I, yeah, I thought got, Peter had got we're you back. kicked out. That was the Holy Spirit. There you
1: go. That was the excommunication policy.
0: That was quick. <laughs>
1: go on, Your Peter. I'm just going to haunted house, house ghosts ghost
2: are my... on fire. <laughs> the haunted house ghosts so, are just I... working here.
4: <laughs> So when the um, Pentecostal fanatics running the Christian Union had an anti-cult campaigner come round and tell them how awful Mormons are and told me I wasn't allowed to pray anymore after worshipping with them for a year, um, Steve Aitchison, who was the uh, in the year above me as an art student and was the assistant to the Anglican chaplain in the school, and he was on the Christian Union committee, he thought this was ridiculous because... It, Christian union is not a church so he's like well why are you doing church discipline on Peter because you're not a church you know you can't be telling him he can't pray or something or judging that he's not a Christian so what followed was he got hold of every anti-Mormon book there, there was at the time this is all pre-internet in the early 1990s and we spent a year or more just wading through all this anti-Mormon literature, having many hours long discussions about Mormonism and early Christianity and so on. So one of the things that obviously came up a lot was temple work and baptisms for the dead. Um, We both kind of went on a bit of a quest, I certainly did, to try and find all the um, biblical commentaries we could from different authors and different denominations about these verses. And what was really interesting was a good half of them Acknowledged that this verse did seem to be pointing specifically to an actual ritual that the Christians were doing. You know, they weren't dismissing it. The, the best they could come up with as an alternative in the in the sources I saw anyway was um, that it was referencing people who had been so impressed by the testimony of Christians who died that their example have motivated them to become Christians and be baptized. So that's the, the major oh. sort of alternate interpretation that you're being baptized for the dead meant you're being baptized because of the example of Christians who've died, maybe even martyrs. Although at the time that was written, the martyrdoms hadn't really got going. Um, and so that was the best sort of rational explanation. But what was clear, um, and this is something in the church's favor that, you know, all of these leading Bible commentators and scholars, you know, the kind of people Joseph plagiarised for the Joseph Smith translation, um, they found these verses difficult. They knew they were problematic because actually it did seem to speak quite strongly. And some of them acknowledged mm-hmm. that there must have been a tradition in the early Christian church of doing proxy baptisms for people who hadn't, who'd missed the boats, you know, who hadn't been able to hear the gospel before they died, so there is some, you know, there is some. It's not just the church messing up or totally misquoting something. There is some credible basis for for interpreting it the way that they have. I found that really interesting. It's it, fascinating.
2: Is it possible yeah. though? I, well, I mean, I know it's it's possible. For me, keeping in mind, I'm someone who um finds a lot of value in in mm-hmm. this this thing that we do of baptisms for the dead ancestor worship ancestor, you know, not necessarily in the form of worship, but more sort of, you know, that that remembering of ancestors is something that's really important to me and is culturally mm-hmm. very important throughout the world. I for me that sort of that that train of thought is a bit too apologetic for me. I get that I, I guess what I'm saying is if if that's what as as a faith we're going to take from that scripture, great, go for it. It works for me. But also, throughout the world, um, if we're having this broader conversation in that that passage, which is, do people really rise from the dead? Is Jesus going to come back? And is he coming back with his body? What exactly is that going to look like? Or are we just disembodied spirits? Or is that it? And throughout the world, people are asking the same question and looking to sort of ancestor worship to, you know, maybe answer some of those questions. And so I think referring to the fact that, yeah, exists exists. Um, wh- whether or not it was actually practiced that early on, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of ambiguous about it. I don't need it to be, you know, I don't need it to be rooted in an early Christian practice, but certainly I believe that Joseph Smith did.
3: Okay. Well, if you've enjoyed what you've seen so far, guys, then uh, hit the like button because I've, that 300 was a lofty goal and I'm starting to feel we're not going to get there. <laughs> um, we're on 24. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, Close. Close there. Yeah.
4: We're, we're all going to have to get naked for this one. <laughs> you reckon? Well, no, if I'm you sure don't we'll press like, like, we're all going to get naked. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let's, start th- let's start threatening them. <laughs>
3: like no. it could get really worse. <laughs> And if you're listening on the podcast, then leave a nice review. Uh, 27 likes Julian. They've obviously seen your Mm. pecs. 29 likes. (laughs) Bloody hell guys. Um, (laughs) Loosen my shirt up right then. (laughs) So Joseph Smith. Mm. Peter's going to correct me because I'm likely wrong, but Joseph Smith for me, when he saw a problem in life, he'd fill it with a a religious practice or he'd fill it with Mm a crowd pleaser. And that's what I think this is. Mm. Okay. Um, Mm. Like it was saying there, there was the sister who had lost her son before he was baptized, boom, Mm. baptism for the dead. But there were other things going on as well. And one of them was,